when I realized the imbalances in the venture world and the fact that that's really holding back innovation for many things that would serve women better and would serve the world better, honestly, I was like, okay, I have to get on the playing field and get more involved in this. Welcome to Making Change With Your Money, a podcast that highlights the stories and strategies of women who experienced a big life transition and overcame challenges as they redefined financial success for themselves. Now here's your host, certified financial planner, Laura Rotter. I am so excited to have as my guest today, Sue Bennon Baggett. Sue's career journey has taken her from global innovation leader at Procter & Gamble to founder of Power Within Consulting to, as she puts it, accidental angel investor and startup advisor. And Sue's superpower is harnessing human connections to drive more meaningful leadership, innovation, and entrepreneurial success. So welcome, Sue, to the Making Change With Your Money podcast. So happy to have you here. Oh, thanks so much, Laura. Thank you for inviting me. I'm going to start with a question I've been starting all my podcast interviews with, which is, what was money like in your family growing up? And maybe you could use that, you know, money as a lens as we discuss your journey going forward. Well, that's a great question, Laura. Money in our family uh, growing up was not plentiful. Um, We were not poor, but we were definitely on a tight budget. My dad was in banking. My mom had been a teacher, but stayed home. And we had, and they had three children in rapid succession (laughs) after they were married. So I have, I'm the oldest of three sisters. I have a sister two years younger and a sister four years younger. My mom uh, taught us a lot about um, how to keep to a tight budget. <laughs> she, including things like, you know, making uh, clothing for us and, you know, keeping meals like super simple. So again, um, you know, we, we definitely learned how to be creative and, and frugal and learning how to, to save her her parents were another role model for that. So I had grandparents uh, similarly modeling that. I, uh, also, I would say um, a little bit later in life, had an experience of an uncle who went bankrupt, which was a very sad situation. And again, kind of, I think, imprinted on me that um, developing financial security, was, uh, independence and security was a, a major goal after that. Thank you. It sounds like, you know, money was present in your household. You did not take it for granted. I also love that there was a lot of female energy in your home growing up. What was your thoughts about your education given the frugality? Did you take it for granted you'd go to college? What was the message when you were growing up? You know, interesting, like there was a big focus on education. Um because uh, both of my parents uh, were college graduates and, you know, believed strongly that education was important. And uh, my mother, my mother's background as a teacher made her use education as a priority for where we lived. So we lived in a very small home, but we lived in one of the best public school districts in a suburb outside of Philadelphia. And so that was very important. So I went to, you know, a a public school, um, it's a very large public high school, but the, the quality of education was really high. And so, um, and I definitely aspired, you know, to go to college and worked very hard because my feeling was uh, um, that that would give me more opportunities uh, as far as education was concerned. I also thought when I was very young that I wanted to be a veterinarian. I found out that getting into veterinary school is harder than getting into med school because there's so few of them. And I found out that, uh, let's see, I was lucky to live in a state that had a, a veterinary school, which gave me some chance. But if I wanted to do that, I had to get not only exceptional grades, but really uh, a lot of experience. And so I, uh, one of my early jobs was actually working for a veterinarian. <laughs> now, I later learned <laughs> that I had definitely a very idealized view of what veterinary medicine would be like and switched that. But uh, but when I went to college, I decided to study engineering because I was uncertain as to which path I was going to go on. And I knew from my uh, grand one of my grandfathers, my father's father was an engineer. 
And I knew that engineers had a very good chance of making a good living. So when I was looking for something to do that had that financial security, and I loved science and math, so it wasn't, you know, it was a good fit for me. It wasn't like I was doing something I didn't love. And you could take, uh, I could get a chemical engineering degree with a minor in biology, take all the prerequisites I would need to go to either veterinary school or medical school. But if I changed my mind, I'd have a job or be very likely to have a job. So, uh, so that anyhow, so that's what I did. I studied studied engineering um, and took all these prerequisites, and then ended up deciding during college that I wasn't going to pursue either veterinary medicine or standard medicine. <laughs> In fact, I I I I learned what I more about what I did not want to do during my early years of working. So, for the vet, veterinarian, I learned that there's a, a lot of things about that role that were very routine and ordinary and didn't fit with what I wanted to do. And then my summer between my uh, junior and senior year, when I did an engineering internship, I worked for an oil company because that was where I could get a job that uh, that I could get to from my home. So I didn't have to live outside the home. And I've been recommended by um, one of my professors. So and it was doing mathematical modeling of a catalytic cracking unit for you know this oil company. And um, I could do it. I enjoyed the challenge of the the programming and the mathematical modeling piece. But my I was sitting in front of a computer all day. My favorite part of the of the role was lunch. That's when I could interact with the other interns. And so that helped me decide that you know working for an oil company was definitely not for me, and that I needed to do something that was more people oriented. And uh, and then ended up interviewing for Procter and Gamble, a consumer products company which is focused on, you know, improving people's lives through, uh, you know, superior products and services, you know, that help them, help them every day. So that was a much better fit. I love the fact, well, you said a number of important things there, Sue. First of all, the idea that an internship or trying out jobs during or just after college is a way to inform us of what we don't want as much as what we want. We imagine what a job will be, but until you're actually doing it in the trenches, you have no idea if it really suits you. And also understanding who you are and that you are a people person. You want to interact with people. Being in front of a computer all day was never going to be satisfying and that you knew that at a relatively young age. So congratulations to you. Yeah. Now I've I appreciate it. And I used all of those technical skills um, in the work I did. So I'm really glad I got that training and that I, in fact, the programming language that I used that summer ended up being the same programming language that I had to use when I was doing, you know, consumer testing and analysis and things like that. So this great skill set to have just learned I wanted to apply it in a different way. (laughs) I also think it's interesting growing up, as you said, in a household with women, that you were so drawn to male-oriented fields. And I also grew up two girls. And so I saw when I met other families, I didn't have the indoctrination that my role is to clear off the table and set the table, or certainly that was part of my role. But my sister and I both became professionals and were primary breadwinners of our families for many years. And sometimes I think That may have been because we didn't have brothers where we might have felt there was a sense of a different emphasis on our role rather than theirs. Do you think of that sometimes? Well, it's actually kind of interesting because um, I had a very very interesting situation in my family. Um, When I was uh, very young, uh, around four years old is when my youngest sister was born. And not long after that was we had just moved into our new small home. We had been living in a third story apartment. Um, but we were way outgrowing it. So my mom had a friend visiting her and I ended up um, a small, small enough home. We were in another room playing, but I ended up overhearing her say to her friend, I'm so sorry. I wasn't able to give Bob the son he wanted. And I was very confused. I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> What's wrong with daughters? <laughs> why, why is my father, you know, and my mother unhappy about having a third daughter. Of course, I couldn't really ask any questions about that, but I kind of became determined that, and the reason was that my dad's views were a bit more traditional. He was a big 
athlete. That was, was one of his focus. So he had been a multi-sport athlete growing up, loved playing sports, loved watching, you know. And in his mind, boys were athletes. And so if he had a son, then he could teach his son you know, to be an athlete. And my dad loved this very much. So don't get that idea. Like, but it stuck with me. And so part of me was saying, you know, well, I can do anything, you know, boys can do. And I, you know, kind of set out to prove that. So in some ways that was maybe a driver to me to prove, prove that. Now I had a little bit of a hard time proving I could be an athlete. It took a lot of effort because I was also asthmatic and had a lot of challenges learning to run, but I did get involved in a variety of different sports starting with some that didn't require the, <laughs> quite the endurance and then building up um, over time. But, you know, I did cheerleading, I did gymnastics, and then ultimately ended up playing lacrosse and loved it. So it was a great, it was great experience, kind of, you know, my dad's, my dad's views and his love of sports encouraged me to do that, which wasn't quite a fit. So I'm really glad I developed those skills. I learned so much from, you know, the, well, you know, great exercise, great team interaction experiences, all kinds of, you know, persistence. <laughs> like if I be the slowest person and eventually, you know, develop the endurance. So I'm really glad for that. Uh, so my so my dad kind of had this funny lens of what women, you know, with traditional, more traditional roles. But interesting, it was his father, who was the engineer, my grandfather, who encouraged me, said, girls could be anything they want to be. And he saw that I liked math and science. And he's like, be an engineer, you know, engineers solve tough, important problems. So, yeah, so he really is the one that, you know, encouraged me to pursue that. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. So P&G sounds like a company you joined pretty soon after graduating. Oh, yeah, right after. In fact, that was their model at the time. They do now um, hire some experienced people, but um, they predominantly are from within companies. So, so the opportunity to to join them was uh, now they did. I, the first time I applied to P&G was for one of their internships, which I was turned down for. And then I was encouraged uh, by my um, one of my professors to apply again because they said the internships are different than, you know, the regular ones. So the actual post-college, there's broader, you know, different kinds of, of opportunities. And just because you didn't get the internship doesn't mean you couldn't be a candidate for a full-time opportunity. So I reapplied and then did ultimately uh, get hired by, by P&G in their um, beauty care division. Uh, it, it turns out that my decision to combine chemical engineering and biology was a really good fit with this newer kind of emerging business area for them. And so that's how I ended up at P&G. And can you describe how your roles evolved? Because you were there quite a long time and knowing you, your curiosity and your energy, you certainly weren't in the same role for a lot of the time. And also perhaps how it spoke to your skill of interacting with others. So um, I was really fortunate. I had a great training supervisor at, at P&G and it is, it's so important. And he, um, his expertise was in um, the consumer or customer understanding area. And so I learned a lot of skills from him about how to do that well, how to deeply understand the customers that you're serving, you know, what are their needs? And then how do you design products that fulfill those needs? And so, you know, I started out by doing, you know, kind of, you know, bench scale work, <laughs> helping to, you know, create those products. But then I evolved in my particular area of expertise was in, in, that, in that role of translating between consumer customer needs and setting direction for, uh, for innovation design. That's so interesting. So you used a word I'm not familiar with, bench scale. What is oh, right. So in the innovation process, when you're first starting, um, you don't go all the way to like full scale development of any product or design. You want to learn to create it. But the terms they use nowadays are a lean innovation approach. We didn't have that language back then, but 
You're learning how to make things on a very small scale. You're trialing them with uh, consumers or customers, and you're iterating or experimenting until you get that thing that fits, that lights them up, that excites them and delights them. I love the word innovation. It's sort of hard for me to imagine that word within a behemoth like Procter & Gamble. So could you perhaps like talk about a day or or a product, like what that would be like in terms of the innovation of, I don't know, do we do hair care or? Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so I started my career in, um, in, in beauty care and hair care. This was back in the, you know, mid to late 80s and uh, big hair was <laughs> happening at the time. Some people listening to your podcast may remember that. And, uh, and people were st- starting to find the need of using, you know, conditioner in addition to shampoo to control all that hair. Um, <laughs> but then they were complaining about having to take two steps because they weren't used to that. So, so we identified a consumer need for a, a two-in-one combining a complete shampoo and conditioner into a single product. And that sounds really simple, right? But it's not because traditional uh, shampoo ingredients are uh, negatively charged, c- traditional uh, conditioning ingredients were positively charged. If you mix the two together, you basically get slime. So we had to to innovate, to create, identify um, new combinations that would um, fully clean and fully condition hair in one step. And so I was part of the um, consumer side of the team, helping understand what people's needs are and working closely with some other folks on the team who were formulating. And uh, we developed first products that we proved in the lab in the, you know, would fully clean and fully condition. And so we used lab testing and salon testing where we were washing and conditioning people's hair. So we were all excited. We found some things that worked. It was, you know, a patented new new set of ingredients, patented process, all of that. We were so excited to go to consumer testing. We thought people were going to love this. And we failed our first consumer test, the first in-hand test. And so then we had to do this work to understand what happened, right? So I ended up creating these in-shower interviews. Oh my God. We needed to- <laughs> So we had people in bathing suits, of course, <laughs> but we had them come into our into our site. We had shower curtains hung low so we could see and hear and listen to them describe their experience with the products. And we found out that we were we were off on a couple of areas. We weren't giving them the right uh, in use experience for how their hair was like lathering and rinsing for them to feel confident. And we learned there was a lot of distrust because they tried other products that didn't work well for them, and so they were skeptical if whether this would actually work for them. So we needed to do some things to to reassure them. And through some of this work, we realized that we not only needed to tell people that we had a two-in-one that worked, that we had to prove we had a two-in-one at work. And so we developed one of the first large-scale sampling programs that had ever been done at Procter & Gamble as a way to building trust in people to buy a full-size bottle. So we, we learned a ton from that work. And then that that platform that we developed was then used to create not just better two-in-ones, but better shampoos and conditioners and you know, form the basis of a really explosive growth of PNG's hair care business by reapplying it on you know, brands like, uh, it, it was first used for Perk Plus, which isn't around anymore for Perk Plus directly, but later to Pantene and then you know, Head and & Shoulders. And so that's you know, a little bit of the, <laughs> the story. You, know, you have to do trial and error to get to those, you know, those breakthroughs. And you have to really not only like listen to what people say they want, but you have to dive deeper and understand and really share like life experiences with them so you can understand what they truly need and desire. Thank you so much for walking me through that because I now I can understand what it was you did. And I also I love the fact that it does combine your interest in science with um, nowadays it's with digital products. I always hear the term user experience, but that's exactly what, you know, what you were doing. So you've got to interact with people, see what makes them tick, what helps them make their decisions. It's fascinating work. Yeah, it was really, really interesting work. And then and then PG's innovation, you talked about, you know, what kind of career do you have there? They have a, a dual ladder. They have one that they call the technical ladder where people are developing uh, increasing technical expertise in a particular area of focus. And then they have a management ladder. And I ended up going up the innovation management ladder. So that means you're leading new, bigger projects and teaching other people in your organization how to do the, you know, kind of the direct, the direct work. So I was able to have a, a, a really growthful career at PNG by moving up 
the leadership system, but also moving from, you know, my early experience in um, hair care, uh, then P&G bought a cosmetics and fragrances business. It's now been divested, but I got to work on um, on that business and then ultimately the baby care business. And through that, I also I worked in the headquarters in Cincinnati initially, but then I was over in Europe for five years and then I was in Baltimore for a few years and then eventually back in Cincinnati. So it was a and P&G is a global company. So I had an opportunity to work with global teams very early in my career, which was fabulous too. You had so many people with different backgrounds, experiences, and innovation. You truly, you get to break through innovation by getting people with very, very different backgrounds and experiences together and aligned on, you know, what they need to deliver. And, you know, that's how you, 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 know, you get to better, better results. That is not an easy thing to do, Sue. I mean, uh, there are so many cultural differences in how people communicate, uh, both verbally as well as non-verbally. So I guess I have two separate questions, but aligned, which is what skills of yours do you think helped you in those kind of roles? And then what mentors or resources did you have access to? to to help you grow into those roles? So um, I think one of the biggest skills for me, which was a surprising skill, was empathy. Um, Empathy and engineering don't always go together. But uh, uh, growing up, one of the challenges, um, when I was about 11 years old, my mom had her first emotional breakdown. Um, She was later diagnosed as being bipolar. And that was a, a pretty significant challenge uh, until she was able to, through the help of others, understand what was happening and get the right treatment and all of that. So that created some uh, a rocky, rocky road for my sisters and I growing up, but it made me really want to help my mom in any way I could as she was going through this battles with her battles with mental illness. And um, and so I think I developed a lot of sensitivity to other people's emotional changes and, you know, a lot of desire to serve and, and help. So um, I think taking that into my role and needing to understand, you know, people, whether it's the people, the customers we were serving or whether it was the people on the team that I was leading, I think that empathy was really powerful. Some people think of empathy as a weakness, and I think it was one of my biggest strengths. Wow. That's, um, that must've been difficult at 11 years old. And it's before discussions about mental health were in the open. No, you're right. It was a very difficult thing to talk about outside our family. Fortunately, my parents were wise enough to get me some um, therapy help when going through that, because as the oldest child, a lot of responsibility fell on me over time, like in high school and college. I had a few close, really close friends that were wonderful support through that and that I could talk to. Nowadays, I talk much more openly about it because I think it's helpful for people to understand, you know, get, they need to understand it better and need to, to understand how to help the people that they love that might be going through that. And it's so common. It really is a common. And the pandemic just brought it to a head. People who had never experienced it before had terrifying debilitating anxiety and all kinds of things. So I think the silver lining is people are now talking about it and recognizing that it's a real challenge, just as much as physical health challenges are, mental health challenges are very real and need support and need to be addressed. It's so true that we're all benefiting from a more open conversation, whether it's the Naomi Osaka's of the world, athletes, others sharing their struggles with mental health. I'm tearing up because certainly we've all had personal experiences with families, and but now it's no longer something that's not talked about. I agree with you. I am so grateful for those folks who have spoken out uh, because it does, it opens up the conversation and then that benefits everybody. So the, the, the other question you, you, you asked me was, did I have um, you know, mentors and sponsors to help? Absolutely. Uh, again, very fortunate being in the beauty care, but well, P&G as a whole is a great company for diversity, equity, and inclusion. So I was lucky as a woman to join that company, but in particular, the beauty care division 
was one of the younger divisions and had some women already in leadership roles above me. So I had some great both male and female um, leaders that I worked for. But uh, one of my early bosses actually became the chief technology officer for PNG uh, that eventually, um, and she, uh, Kathy Fish, she was an amazing boss, um, had really amazing strengths, both on the human side and the technical side. So I learned a tremendous amount from her. And then there was another female sponsor who was like a level above Kathy. Her name was Seal Kuzma. And she was a tremendous, you know, supporter and encourager through my career, even when I was facing challenges as I got moved to assignments in Europe, you know, 15 plus years in time, um, you know, she was there to support and encourage and help, you know, help provide support through more, you know, challenging. I mean, we all go through career challenges, right? And she was there to support me through that. And, you know, also several, you know, male, male leaders who were supportive as well. So, um, and, you know, my advice to women these days is, if you don't have those kinds of support, seek them out. We all need them and we all benefit from them. Yes. And I love the fact that you are breaking the myth that women do not help each other. Because there is their mythology out there that women are always competing with each other on some level. So I, it's wonderful to hear that the two names you mentioned. So, Sue, can you um, share with our listeners what started to change towards the end of your time with PNG that made you ultimately leave? And this is a great question. I, I had several wonderful experiences at PNG, but around about the early 2000s, you know, uh, PNG has was you know making some changes and decided to offer some voluntary separation packages. And uh, at first, I wasn't thinking about leaving, but I had done some. Like personal development and soul searching. And I was saying the most important thing in my life was my my kids. My sons were like seven, uh, seven and eight at the time I was considering. And, uh, and yet I was spending, I was doing a, a global innovation role. My husband was also in a global role at P&G. So we had a dual career global roles. And uh, the way I was leveraging my time wasn't lining up with what I said was most important in my life. And I said, well, maybe. And then I had people I was at a level where I was having, I had an organization of 40-ish people at the time and I was having a lot of people come and say, should I consider these voluntary separations? And I was like, you know, maybe I had in the back of my mind at some point to do something a little more independent and entrepreneurial. Maybe this was the time to do it. And as I looked ahead at PNG, I had had a phenomenal career, was very happy there. The way that things had been evolving at that next level, if I had stayed and gone to that next level, I didn't think we're going to be leveraging uh, my strengths. I used to be able to see a next level at PNG that I felt would have played to my strengths, and the way the way they evolved the role was going to be more um, more generalist and administrative at the next level. And I wasn't it wasn't something I was aspiring to. So when you added all those things up, and my husband and I talked about it, if I was ever going to do anything more independent and entrepreneurial. At the time, they were offering me a year's salary and all of my options. And so we did the math. If I was ever going to leave, that was the time to consider doing it. I also did a number of networking discussions, trying to figure out, stay, go. <laughs> and I ended up talking to uh, a former PNG acquaintance of mine, and uh, he had started his own consulting business. And I went to kind of ask him, what was it like to leave PNG? And I left the the lunch with a job offer. So I had a, you know, part-time consulting offer kind of in my back pocket. And that made the decision to go a lot easier. And then I spent, took three months off completely to understand what I wanted to do in the transition time, start my own business then or join a boutique firm and hold off and start my own business later. And I decided it was better to take the interim step of taking a, a, a flexible part-time and learn my way into, into starting my own business. And that also opened up a possibility to do other things in my life that I had interest in, having a little more time to get involved with my son's school and activities. So I ended up getting involved with the Parent Association and then getting more involved with some um, emerging philanthropic endeavors. Uh, I had just joined um, 
an organization that you now actually we learned to also join. Uh, I was a founding member of a women's giving circle called Impact 100, which was founded in Cincinnati. And I had started participating in that while I was still at PNG. Leaving PNG gave me an opportunity to to spend more time doing that. So, um, so I was able to kind of diversify the things that I was doing. I mean, keep keep working from a professional standpoint. I'm a better mom as a working mom. <laughs> and so that was good. And uh, but but then, you know, kind of look at other ways to, to I mean, have it my, like my vision of having an impact, I think, um, up until that point were, you know, work hard and make money and then give it away to charities, you know, organizations doing good work. And I hadn't had a lot of you know time to devote to that. So I always gave, but I didn't have a lot of time for volunteering and things. And so this kind of opened my eyes to some different ways of having impact. And, and that was a good, it was a good change um, for, for me. And it was a good change for us as a, as a family. Um, and then I put the idea of starting my own business on hold for a little while, but eventually decided to do that once my kids were in college. I mean, what I'm hearing, Sue, um, is that the decision to leave was, of course, I guess, intellectual, right? It's the right time, but it was also informed by your values and almost an intuitive sense of what was important to you and what was the right next step. And you didn't just make it rashly, you had conversations. And I often think that these um, sort of kismet opportunities appear when we do allow our inner voice to have a say in what's important to us. And so I love how you combine the two and it, it sounds like it you know, you look back and you know it was exactly the right choice to leave at that time. Did you have any questions at the time? Big changes are always hard. It was a big leap, but um, but no, I did. It, it was a, a, a long considered decision, and then I I announced my decision that I was going. Then the president of the division I worked with called me in a couple months later, trying to convince me to stay. <laughs> <laughs> And do a part-time role there. And anyhow, just so, um, so I had a chance to rethink it a couple of times, but ultimately you're right. It felt like the right time and the right alignment. And I knew, I knew the, the most important to th thing to me at PNG had been the relationships that I had with people. And so, you know, I kept up with those relationships. Um, I had to take a year where I could not work back for P&G, but I ended up doing some consulting work back for them and have done it actually ever since I left. They're not my primary customer by any stretch, but I stayed involved where where it made sense. And uh, so, um, yes, ultimately now I can look back and say it was one of the best decisions that I made at the time. It was a little scary. but And, and you know, I, I, I have to say I had a safety net. Right. Because my husband was still working for PNG. So it was, I think, relatively easier for us as a dual career family because he could stay and have, you know, the more, or at least at that time, it seemed like, you know, more secure role that supported our family with benefits and all of that. And that gave me, you know, he, he gave me a real gift of, okay, you know, yes, you can go off and, and, and explore these other opportunities. And, uh, and, you know, we, of course, renegotiated the roles that we were playing with the family, within the family and things like that. So uh, I would be wrong not to mention that I had that that wonderful support and safety net from from him. Yes, I, I and you said you had a severance package and you were able to exercise your options as someone who took advantage of the severance package and also has a husband in academics that was an adjunct salary when our kids were you know, being educated and was more expensive, but certainly I appreciate it so much now and gives me the ability to, to do, you know, my career journey in my own way. And um, I want to make sure we mention before I hear more about your angel investing, what a wonderful organization Impact 100 is, as uh, you are a founding member in Cincinnati. Was that? Um... Yeah, I, you know, um, the the original founder, Wendy Hushak Steele, her kids were in school with my kids. And that's how I learned about it. But when I heard this idea of, you know, women coming together uh, with their collection to pooling their resources 
to provide larger size grants for nonprofits. I thought, what a creative idea. You collect more money, but you also have the collective wisdom in terms of making the decision about which nonprofits to give that funding to, to make transformational change in, um, in your community. And a lot of times these nonprofits have to work as hard to write a grant request for $5,000 as they do for $100,000, which is, you know, for the model for Impact 100 is for every uh, member contributing $1,000, they would give that full amount back out to a nonprofit in the form of these transformational $100,000 grants. So loved the model, got initially involved with helping kind of the mission, vision, and values, and ended up on the board the second year and was one of the board presidents over time, and then eventually helping other of uh, the model start up in other in other communities because I thought it was so powerful. And uh, you know, really taught me a lot about about the nonprofit world by, you know, as I said, I had always given, but I got to know a lot of the nonprofit leaders in our community, which was phenomenal and the amazing work that they were doing, had an opportunity to meet other wonderful values aligned women who were part of it, but from very, very different backgrounds. And so when you're coming together and talking about what does impact mean to you and what does our community need as far as impact, that were those were powerful discussions. And I've, you know, created some amazing, you know, 20 plus year <laughs> friendships now with some of the same women. So that was uh, powerful. Yes. And I would echo that. I've been a member. I think this is either my seventh or eighth year. I did have the opportunity to be treasurer. So on the executive board and now I'm in um, the nonprofit advisory committee. And for someone who commuted back and forth into New York City and had very little to do with my local community, it has just been invaluable to get to know the needs and the and the organizations that are there to to meet those needs. And so how did that then morph into your accidental angel investor? <laughs> so, yeah, there was no no direct relationship between Impact okay. 100 and and the angel investing, although it 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 um it did open my eyes to just how challenging it is for these nonprofits to drive change when they really are strapped for, for financial resources. So that piece was there. The accidental angel investing came back in a different way I was doing. Um, so my innovation, my consultancy focuses on strategy and innovation. I was doing some um, strategy consulting at the University of Cincinnati, not their main board of trustees, but they had set up a kind of a sideboard around around innovation and working um, better partnerships with both industry and the local community. One of the board members I worked with was a guy by the name of Tony Shipley. He was an exited software engineer, who, uh, a software, sorry, ex exited CEO for a software company. And he decided after he you know, had a successful uh, exit that one of his givebacks to the community was going to be establishing an angel group. Um, and so he was one of the community leaders on this board, liked the work that I did from a strategy standpoint and said, hey, our angel group could use a strategy refresh. And so Queen City Angels became my client. So before meeting Tony, I knew very little about angel investing. And my imagined it was, you know, a bunch of very rich people who were just trying to get richer by investing in these startup companies. What I learned by doing the work with them, because of course, the very first thing we had to do was stakeholder insight work and understand who was being served, which included, you know, understanding the members and why did they join, understanding the startups and what did, how did they feel about working with these angel investors and understanding the local ecosystem, supporting startups who were, you know, partners with Queen City Angels and some of their sponsors as well. And so through that work, I learned a lot about angel investing and I found out it's not all about the money. Yes, of course, they would like to get returns because they'd like to be able to continue to invest. But angel investors work, they're investing their private money. So for those people who aren't you know, familiar with angel investing, um, you know, you have investing on the stock market, which of course is public company investment. Angel investing comes way, way earlier in a company's life cycle at the very early stages where and angel investors are investing their own money in these startups. So it is a high risk, high return asset class, but a lot of risk. <laughs> um, so they were doing, if, if all you want to do is make money, there's a lot easier ways to do it than angel investing. Honestly, you, you know that <laughs> from your work. But, but if you want to give back in terms of helping 
these startup companies become successful, they need a lot of things. They need capital, but they also need coaching and they need connections and they need a lot of things that angels can help with. So angels were doing it because they loved working with entrepreneurs, because they loved seeing small businesses grow, loved to see, you know, those entrepreneurs, help those entrepreneurs succeed, grow jobs, grow the, you know, regional, local economy. There's just a lot of benefits of, you know, kind of a win-win when angel investors work alongside startups. So I, I learned that and became much more interested when I realized the connection between angel investing and community development. But the real reason I decided to do it was the shock I had when I learned that less than 3% of venture capital goes to female founded companies. I was just appalled. Women represent 50% of the population who could possibly believe they have only 3% of the ideas worth funding. And, you know, and, and Tony thought that was crazy too. And when we went through the strategy work and they picked three pillars to focus on, diversity, equity, inclusion was one of the three pillars this predominantly male group picked to work, focus on because they realized we don't have a sufficient representation of women on the investor side. So we are probably not making the best in decisions on which companies to invest in. And we are probably not attracting, you know, kind of the all of the different types of potentially exciting companies that are being founded out there. And so after finishing the strategy work, Tony asked me to join Queen City Angels, lead that strategy pillar. And then he also connected me with um, a woman named Alicia Robb, who was a senior Kaufman fellow who had done a lot of research around challenges with women's access to capital, written two books on the subject. And she was starting a pilot fund training women to get involved in angel investing. And so uh, after meeting Alicia, I ended up getting involved in that pilot fund and then ultimately getting involved with her Next Wave Impact Fund, which was not just angel investing, but angel investing in companies with a for-profit companies with a positive mission. So what started with, you know, zero experience in angel investing in 2015 and not even really understanding it, I ended up deciding to jump in with both feet in 2016, <laughs> joining both Alicia and Tony's groups. And uh, I bid on a tremendous learning journey ever since. Well, you get very animated when you discuss it, Sue. So it's clearly something that really speaks to you and what your mission is in the world. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the reason I get animated about it is because I felt a little bit um, like, how did I not realize that that this was happening? I think for many of us who, you, know, you certainly with the growing up in the financial world, which is very male dominated, you know, you're advocating for women's advancement in the context of existing companies. I, you know, very much advocating for that in, in large enterprises. And then suddenly I realized, well, yeah, those there's still opportunities for improvement in those enterprises. But when I realized the imbalances in the venture world and the fact that that's really holding back innovation for many things that would serve women better and would serve the world better, honestly, I was like, okay, I have to get on the playing field and get more involved in it. So, um, so yeah, it has become a passion of mine just to make people more aware because so many people don't understand that opportunity investing in startups has to, to make, to drive change. But, you know, if you, if you go back to, you know, where we started talking money and um, different women have different like relationships with money, but money is power and power to change. And if women are only using gifting to nonprofits as a way of driving change, it's going to take an awfully long time to create that change. Because even though I think the, um, you know, this figure may be off by a year or so, but I think, you know, there's like about $470 billion of uh, nonprofit giving in the U.S., but that's less than 1% of the value of the U.S. stock market. So if we're putting all the burden of creating positive change on nonprofits, it's unfair. We need mission-driven, for-profit companies committed to positive social environmental change and what better way, I mean, yes, put pressure on the existing ones, but what better way than to focus on startup companies that are founded on that basis, right? With those positive mission are creating positive 
cultures and getting behind them because a lot of them are built to grow and scale so they can create a lot of change over the next 10 years if we get behind them. Yes, getting behind startup companies that are looking to make an impact as well as startup companies founded by women or people of color that are looking to make an impact because as you pointed out, so little of the actual capital is allocated to those founders that are not white heterosexual men. Absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, one of the companies that I, I serve on the board, board for, it's a male and female co-founder, and they're um, they're out to create, you know, more thriving teams, much better workplaces by built with a tech platform that helps build relationships. It's called Cloverleaf. Their uh, website is cloverleaf.me. And then, you know, there's another um, organization called Solo Funds, which is a tech platform for driving, you know, community lending. And you know, their founders are out to disrupt payday lending and to use communities lending to each other as a way of providing access to funding, you know, that uh, is, is fair <laughs> and balanced. And, you know, so there's some really amazing companies that are out there that are creating a lot of positive change. And I will put those websites in the show notes. I I think the development of online platforms has really helped to grow this area because similar to the impact model, though that was for nonprofits, pooling our money to help fund these impact projects is so important. Pooling our money, and using technology as a, a, an accelerator and a scaler, technology that has the human side right, <laughs> you know, and using that to, to grow and scale impact is exciting. Thank you. So as we get towards the end of our conversation, Sue, I'm wondering if you could look back and think about how your definition of success and perhaps financial success has shifted over your journey. Well, that's a great question, Laura. I think I think very early on, my definition of financial success was uh, related to financial independence and financial security. You know, as as uh, you know, wanting to not no longer be dependent on my parents, right? and to, you know, to to develop my my own independence. That was that was first and foremost early on, and then you know how to use my money in good and positive ways. Um, I did originally have that sort of bifurcated model of earn enough money, build that security, et cetera, and then, you know, give to, to nonprofits for a long time. I figured the more I earned, the more I could give. And that was a, a, a good thing at the time. And then over time, I realized, wow, you know, I can also use my time and talents to drive change. And my definition of success was certainly, you know, not about not about necessarily making more money or getting to that next level, but more about, you know, making a positive, meaningful difference, either at work, either in my career work or in my community work. And so, you know, that definitely has evolved. And, and so now I would say that, you know, my, I, I describe my mission as empowering positive impact, um, doing that through innovation and connection. And what that means is, I realized that first of all, I as one individual can only make so much difference, but in connection with others and by empowering, you know, mission-driven leaders of the future, that's how I can can drive more change. So empowering their success is a way to, you know, magnify my impact. That's so beautiful, Sue. Thank you for sharing that. I have to say, I have experienced your giving, you are an amazing connector. And I've, I've, you know, I continue to learn from you to, you know, try to pick up that skill myself. And so you all, I've already seen the impact you have just through your personal relationships. And um, I'm really excited that you and I met each other because I love what you're doing to help women um, understand the power of their money and how to help them, you know, build, build their security, but also build their impact 
through, you know, how they manage their money, how they invest their money, and um, for them to see new possibilities for how they define their success. So so I, I love the work that you're doing as well. Thank you. And thank you so much for being my guest. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Sue Bevan Baggett, founder of Power Within Consulting. And I'd like to share with you some of the takeaways that I got from our interview. Firstly, understand the activities that give you energy when thinking about the next role you might want to take on. In Sue's case, she enjoyed science and mathematics, but realized she needed to interact with people and not sit in front of a computer all day in order to enjoy her job. And after her long career with Procter & Gamble, she then realized her energy was drawn to being an angel investor as a way to drive change. My second takeaway is the value of persistence. Sue told us how she was determined to be involved with sports when she was in high school, though, frankly, she suffered from asthma and wasn't a natural athlete. She ultimately ended up playing lacrosse and loving it. Similarly, she applied for an internship with P&G when she was in college and she didn't get it. She reapplied post-college and was hired in P&G's beauty care division and that began a long career with the company. My third takeaway is that our challenges can be the source of our greatest strengths. Sue shared that when she was young, her mother faced a battle with mental health. And Sue believes that this helped her develop sensitivity to other people's emotions. Empathy, Sue says, is her greatest strength. And finally, seek out mentors. Sue named in particular two female sponsors that helped her career at P&G. And her advice to us is that if you don't have this kind of support, seek it out. Sue leveraged the network she had built also when deciding whether to take advantage of a severance package and leave. She talked to a former PNGer who had started his own consulting business, and that helped her make the decision to start her own. Are you enjoying this podcast? Don't forget to subscribe so you won't miss next week's episode. And if you love the show, a rating and a review would be so greatly appreciated. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Making Change With Your Money. Certified financial planner, Laura Rotter specializes in helping people just like you organize, clarify, and invest their money in order to support a life of purpose and meaning. Go to www.trueabundanceadvisors.com forward slash workbook for a free resource to help you on your journey. Disclaimer, please remember that the information shared by this podcast does not constitute accounting, legal, tax, investment, or financial advice. It's for information purposes only. You should seek appropriate professional advice for your specific information.